you are invited to turn with me to page 982 in your pew Bibles. Our first scripture reading is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. Our second reading is found on page 1,765. Romans chapter 13, verses 8. Through 14. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the reading of the the word. Would you pray with me this morning? as we come to this place, may our desire be to know you more. Help us to put aside the cares and concerns of our daily living and to find in you rest. And Lord, as we rest and as you renew us, may you more fully and perfectly restore the image of yourself that you have placed in each one of us that we may love you fully 
that we may love our neighbors as ourselves, that we may serve you for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. Now, you know I'm a conversational preacher, and when I ask a question, I mean it, so I'm going to offer that, but I'm also going to give a caveat. Please don't give me a book answer for this question, because I know some of you could, and I'd love to hear the stories. But I need, in just a word, or a few words, I want you to tell me, what brought you here to St. Paul's? A job! <laughs> a job? Your parents? Carol lived around the corner. Your husband, Sue Ellen? Looking for a church home? Judy. Family? Children? Kyle said a wedding. You all better say music up there, choir. That's right. Huh. Margie. Okay, most similar to the, to the church that you grew up in. You got married here? Bonnie. Your grandkids. Stop him here. All right. So kids, grandkids brought you in. Helen. Searching for Jesus brought you here. Tom. You know, I do have a red light flashing on my answering machine. I better listen to that and see who called me. Those are all... Uh, oh, Barbara. Well, last one, Barbara. A Lenten luncheon and Carol Camp. Awesome. <clears throat> all wonderful answers. All important and uh, wonderful reasons that you're here at St. Paul's. You know what none of you said? John Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification. <laughs> or I read Wesley's sermon on the new birth and I realized I had to be a Methodist. Those may not have been reasons that brought you into St. Paul's. You may not have poured over the journals of John Wesley or fell in love with the theology and the hymnody of his brother Charles Wesley. Or you may not have uh, read the journals of the westward expansion of Methodism under the leadership of Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch. But now that you're here, now that you're here at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, whether you've come because Carol invited you, or a Lenten lunch, or you were searching, or through the family connection you wound up here, all beautiful reasons and good reasons that you're here. But now that you are here, I believe it's important for us to know what it is that this particular expression of the body of Christ known as Methodism believes and teaches. And so over the next six weeks, starting today and going through the middle of October, we're going to have a six-week sermon series called The Wesleyan Way on distinctives of Methodism. I think it's important if, if you were to, to, to unite with, with any church, with any civic entity, if you were to, say, attend this school or go into this career, 
Wouldn't you want to know something about that thing to which you have committed yourself? And if you're here and you've committed to this church, it's important that you know some of the distinctives of what makes Methodist Methodist. That's hard to say twice in a row. So as we go over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about sin. Somebody said, boy, that's a cheerful topic. Well, you know, we've got to talk about sin because it's real. And how else do we understand and appreciate the grace of God and his holiness if we don't first understand the sinful condition of human beings? What's the point of grace if there is no sin? So we'll start with sin. We're going to talk about grace. John Wesley understood God's grace coming in four distinct movements. Provenient grace, the grace that goes before and calls people to Christ. Convicting grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. So we'll talk about those. That'll be one sermon for all four. So strap into your seatbelts. We're going to move through that quickly. We're going to talk about holiness, which John Wesley said was the grand depositum of Methodism. A reclamation of the holiness of God. And therefore, how Christians should live lives and be shaped by holiness. We're going to talk about sanctification. And then we're going to talk about the relationship between our faith and between works. Another distinctive of Methodism. If you're here today, no matter what your religious background is or lack thereof, Methodism is part of the larger Christian family. We believe things that Christians have believed from the beginning of the church. The triune God, that Christ's death and resurrection somehow makes us right with God when we accept that by faith. We celebrate communion and baptism. We believe in that the Holy Spirit can work within someone and sanctify their lives so that they can live lives of holiness. We believe in scripture as the inspired revelation from God, the authority for a believer's life. Methodists believe all these things, but we do have distinctives. Not that, for example, Baptists or Presbyterians don't believe in sanctification. They do. But in the Methodist movement, which arose in a particular time and place, there were certain emphases that the Wesley brothers had that shaped that particular movement. So as we go through this sermon series, part of it I hope will perhaps be the teacher coming out in me as we learn about our history together. But even more than that, you know, it's one thing to have head knowledge. We can know all about our history and all of that. But what does it mean for our personal and our corporate relationship with Christ together? That's what's most important. So we'll be looking at how we can understand some of these doctrines in relation to our own spiritual lives in our relationship with Christ. There's a great line from one of Charles Wesley's hymns. It says, Unite the two so long disjoined, knowledge and vital piety. In other words, head knowledge and the heart need to come together. If you have just heart and no head, you can be super zealous, but you might not know what to say, when to say it. That tempers the zeal in the heart. And then all the head knowledge in the world without zeal is just empty, dead learning. They both need to come together. And so my prayer is over the next several weeks we're going to do that.
On October 15th, the last Sunday of this sermon series, after the second service, I want to have kind of a talkback forum. So you're going to have homework in this sermon series. How's that sound? (laughs) Write down questions or things that come up as, as we're going through these together that maybe aren't very clear to you. Or maybe you have a burning question about Methodism that you've always wanted to ask, right? I know you all have those. We're going to have a chance to do that after worship on the 15th. So make notes of your questions and we will, we will get to those. I want to give a very brief overview of Methodism and then we're going to go into our scripture from the book of Romans. Because that particular scripture from Romans chapter 13 gets to an overarching theme in the whole of the movement of Methodism. Something that John Wesley, a lens through which he understood all of ministry and all of life and all of faith. And we'll get to that in just a moment. You have on your screen, John Wesley, he's on the left, and Charles Wesley, his brother's on the right. They were two brothers in a family, I believe, of 13, 14. Susanna Wesley, their mother... Um, nurtured them and raised them in the faith. And in fact, John talked about his mother, Susanna, over and over and over again and really credited her as uh, an important person in his life. She taught them all at home until a certain age and she would spend one hour a day with each of her kids. Oh, sorry, one hour with each of them, but one hour over the course of of a week. Does that math make sense to you? So she would maybe do a couple kids this day and a couple kids the next day, but with an hour individually with each kid, teaching them the Bible. And John said that that really shaped him into who he was. John and Charles Wesley were both priests in the Church of England. They were Anglicans. And until the day they died, they were priests in the Church of England. Methodism was never intended by John and Charles to be its own denomination. That happened much later and for circumstances and reasons beyond their control. But John and Charles Wesley started this movement as a reform movement within the Church of England. And John and Charles believed that the church um, had an appearance of religion, but it had lost its fire and its zeal. And so this reform movement was to bring that fire of the Holy Spirit back into the church. And so they would get together with these small groups of eight or ten people. It was called the Holy Club at Oxford University. And they would get together and they would pray and they would read scripture and they would hold one another accountable for their sin. And did you know that the term Methodist was originally an insult? It was a term of derision. Because those other students at the Oxford University, who were contemporaries and colleagues of John and Charles Wesley, made fun of them for how methodical they were in the development of their spiritual lives. And so they were called Methodists, and it was a term of insult, dripping with derision. So the next time you call somebody a Methodist, you're insulting them. Isn't that wonderful, you great bunch of Methodists? But it stuck. And that methodical approach to the spiritual life, through the means of grace, which John Wesley articulated as reading scripture, as prayer, as fasting, 
receiving communion, gathering together in small groups for accountability. Those were means by which the grace of God could come into an individual's life and sanctify them and change them and transform them. And so John and Charles were very methodical about their approach to the spiritual life. It wasn't until much later, it was after John Wesley's death, or actually just a few years before his death, that Methodism became a denomination. Why do you think that may have been? Looking for good historians, you good Methodists. You don't count, you went to seminary. Somebody brought him a casserole. Well, Pete's getting to the third sacrament that we have in Methodism, communion, baptism, and eating. The Revolutionary War. Who won that war? The colonies, the nascent United States. And you know what that meant for all the priests in the United States or the the developing United States who were priests in the Church of England? What happened to them? They went back to England. And so there was a vacuum in the colonies. And so John Wesley ordained Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke to come to the United States and to begin the Methodist movement in earnest. And it was in 1784 at the Christmas conference in Baltimore, Maryland, that those first Methodists and, and, and Thomas Coke and Francis Asbury laid hands on them and ordained them and sent them out to circuits to start spreading this news, this message of God's holiness and sanctification and what his grace could do in the life of an individual. I believe one of the things that we need to reclaim is to understand Methodism as a renewal movement. That it was always intended to be a movement through which the Holy Spirit would come in to places that were dead and dry and revive them with holy love. We need to remember our roots. There were three experiences, before we move briefly to Romans, there were three experiences that shaped John Wesley's life, and really three that we need to get our minds around to understand him and who he was in his ministry. These are experiences that would come up again and again and again in his sermons and in his journals. And he would reference to them as watershed moments in his life. The first was when his father Samuel was at Epworth. He was His father Samuel was also a priest in the Church of England. And when he was at the church in Epworth, there was a fire in the rectory when John was, I believe, six or seven years old. And he barely escaped through a window. And he said he was like a brand plucked from the fire. And he saw that moment as he was so close to death. And the fact that he was saved and rescued from that fire meant that God had something for him to do. He felt a mark of God on his life for a particular and unique purpose coming out of that experience where he barely escaped a fire. The third one was something that happened in Aldersgate in 1738. Now at this point, 1738, John and Charles Wesley are ordained priests in the Church of England. They've had their own parishes. They have come to the United States, to Georgia, to do missionary work among the native peoples. And it was a terrible disaster. Do you kind of know why it was a disaster? There was this young woman named Sophia Hopke that John Wesley kind of liked. 
But here's something that if you spend time with Wesley that you'll realize about him. He was terribly indecisive. He couldn't make a decision to save his life. And so he would probably sit there under an oak tree in Georgia and he'd take a daisy. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. He was so indecisive. She sort of had some interest in him, but with his indecision, she finally said, yeah, forget it. And she went after someone else. When John's pride was hurt, you know what he did? He refused to serve her communion. And so he got run out of the colonies. I told you this is going to be a salacious sermon series. That was some good alliteration. And so they come back to England dejected. They were not received by the native peoples there. John has uh, dealt with this this, uh, romantic interest kerfuffle. And they come back. But something happens all along the way. When they go to Georgia, when they're there, when they come back, there's this restlessness, almost verging on a depression within John. You see, he's ordained in the Church of England. He knows all this stuff. But he says again and again in his journals that he doesn't have any peace. Oh, he talks about salvation, but he doesn't know it and believe it for himself. And so something happened to him in May of of 1738. He goes to Aldersgate, and this is a bit from his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Okay, so did you get how boring that is? He went and someone's not, they're not even reading from the scripture yet. They're reading Martin Luther, that great reformer, his commentary at the beginning of the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And thus becomes an important doctrine in Methodism, this doctrine of the assurance of salvation. You see, often in Methodism, people will make appeals to John Wesley, and they'll use the word experience, that John Wesley talked about experience and how important that is and that's true but this is the experience he talked about that could be available to every believer not just any experience in life but an experience with the holy spirit witnessing with your spirit that you are indeed a child of god john wesley believed that after it happened to him and that became a watershed moment in his life that a believer can have assurance that they are indeed saved The third thing that happened to John Wesley was just a few months later, on New Year's Day, 1739, at a place called Fetter Lane. Now, early Methodists would get together New Year's Eve, and they would stay up all night praying. You want to do that this New Year's Eve? They would stay up all night praying. And this is what he said happened. He named several people who were with him, among them George Whitfield, the great evangelist, My brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, inasmuch that many cried out with exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. 
As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. So John Wesley, his life shows us a pattern that happens over and over again and a pattern that he sought to instill in his early Methodists. That after an experience that brings the peace and the assurance of God, there often is a subsequent experience with the power of God that allows people to be empowered for ministry. Because after that event, on January 1st, 1739, if you read John Wesley's journals, you know what happened? Incredible miracles happened. He'd pray for people and they were healed. People were delivered from sin, from depression, from anxiety. More and more and more people started to check out who these Methodists were. He began field preaching, which was terribly controversial in the 1730s in the Church of England. He went outdoors and took the gospel to people because he'd had an experience with the peace, which led to an experience with the power, and that changed everything for him. And it can be the same for us. These don't have to just be stories that we read about in the lives of early Methodists. The same is available to each one of us. The same Holy Spirit that met John Wesley at Aldersgate Street and then at Fetter Lane, giving him peace and power, is available to each one of us. In the epistle to the Romans that Tammy read briefly for us today, I want to just remark very briefly on a word that you find in that scripture. When Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he talks about love. And he names commandments, doesn't he? And how it all is summarized, or it all finds its perfect fulfillment in love. Love of God and love of neighbor. John Wesley, over and over again, that that narrative that is overarching over the whole Methodist movement is a concept called holy love. And that qualifier is important because it points us to holiness. It points us to God. So you and I can talk about love all day. And isn't that a word that's bandied around in our culture so often? Love is this, love is that, love is love, da, da, da. But without a qualifier to that love, without an interpretive lens through which we can understand it, that just tends to be so much noise and just a word. We need definition put to it. And in scripture, we do have definition put to it. We have a person that is put to that word. We have a perfect example of love to follow. And it is holy love. See, this is where holy love is important. That qualifier is important. The holiness of God means that some things are okay and some things are not okay. The holiness of God gives shape to our lives. We realize that there are certain things in life that lead us to holiness, that is right living, right action, right orientation toward God and toward others. And there are other things that get in the way of that love, that are not holy, that are not right, that are not good, that are not part of God's design for our flourishing and our relationships with Him and with one another. And unless we have an understanding of His holiness... Our enacting of our love will constantly miss the point. 
because we need him working through us to live out that love in the world around us. And so Paul says there are a couple of ways that happens, positively and negatively. You put on Christ and you put off the flesh. You put on Christ and put off the flesh. We find that over and over and over again within our own movement. This idea that that Jesus doesn't just sort of make us right in God's eyes, oh, he certainly does do that. But it doesn't just end there. He actually gives us his very self, his very life that can change us and radically transform us. We don't go around with just good ideas about Jesus. We go around with Jesus. He's with us, even now, allowing us to live lives of holy love. Friends, take with you today this truth. You too can live a life of holy love when you encounter the peace that comes through the assurance of the Holy Spirit saying to you and your spirit that you are indeed a child of God. And then you can also live a life of holy love out in the world, when you encounter the power, which happens when the Holy Spirit starts to work in you and change you and transform you, allowing you to live the life that God wants you to live. Friends, this is the richness of who we are as Methodists. We claim it. We believe it. And it can change our lives today. Amen?